Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. Back in the 1990s, when Nirvana was teaching us how to have all the feels, virtual reality appeared ready to transform the world. The hype for the young technology was reaching peak levels. Hollywood made movies that incorporated the idea, suggesting that we would soon be able to jump into computer-generated worlds and do everything from navigate file systems in three dimensions, exciting, I know, to taking off like Superman. But as people got a chance to actually try out virtual reality setups in the 1990s, they became disillusioned. The technology just couldn't live up to the hype. You could get an immersive experience, but the graphics were primitive, the headsets were typically so heavy they had to be suspended from the ceiling with cables, your movement was limited, and system latency caused a lot of folks to get motion sickness while trying one out. Interest in VR plummeted, and the industry found itself the proverbial red-headed stepchild of the tech world, as well as the investment world. A lot of people continued to work on VR hardware and software, but it was much more challenging to get funding. Progress was slow. It typically meant that you were appropriating stuff from other industries like the video game world or smartphones in order to get your stuff done. 30 years later, we're seeing something similar with dedicated augmented reality headsets. Magic Leap, a company that at one point was so exciting that it raised around three billion dollars. That's billion with a B. Much of that money, by the way, was raised years before the company had anything significant to show off. It seemed to be on a pretty similar path as VR back in the 90s. And sure enough, now in 2020, the company scrambled to secure a $350 million lifeline investment after laying off about 1,000 workers. Plus, the founder of the company has stepped down. Today, we're going to explore Magic Leap's story. And while, like a leap, there's a rise and a fall, this story is not yet over. Magic Leap could potentially recover, or it might fade into obscurity, or it may just become a company lesser than what it was intended to be. But before we get into the history of the company, it is good for us to define terms like virtual reality and augmented reality both of which fall into a spectrum of technologies that a lot of folks call mixed reality. And it all has to do with a combination of real-world experiences and computer-generated experiences and meshing them together in some way. So if you think of mixed reality as a spectrum, on one extreme end, you've got pure virtual reality. In VR, a computer is providing the sights and sounds, and theoretically, it could provide other sensations as well, including touch through haptic feedback peripherals or scent through various perfumes or oils and dispensers, though not many VR systems go as far as replicating smells, and very few, as far as I know, replicate taste. But the idea is that the computer-generated sensory input is substituting for what we would see in our real world. So instead of seeing a boring office or a retail space in a shopping mall, as was the case when I first experienced VR back in the 1990s, We would be transported into, say, a rainforest, or a pirate ship, or a fantasy realm, or 
as was my case, a bunch of vector graphics of really blocky pterodactyls flying around. Using a control system, we can navigate these virtual environments, and we can interact with them. A true VR experience should be both interactive and immersive. And not all VR is created equal. Some VR experiences are fairly light touch, with only a bit of interactivity, and primitive graphics. Typically, the hardware for VR includes a head-mounted display, so that your vision focuses only on the world that's created by the computer, and some headphones, plus some sort of control system. There may also be external cameras to help track your motion and translate that into what you experience in the virtual environment, giving you a little more nuance to your actions. But in the end, the thing to remember is that the stuff you are experiencing through your senses is, in large part, computer-generated. Augmented reality is closer to the other end of the spectrum of mixed reality. With AR, you have a view of the real world through some sort of display. Uh, it could be a head-mounted display like VR, or it could be something as simple as a smartphone or handheld game system. But whatever it is, it has to be able to overlay digital information on top of your view of the real world. So let's imagine a pair of glasses that can display information on the inside of the lenses so that you can see it. The lenses themselves are transparent, so you are looking at the world as if you were just wearing a normal pair of glasses. And maybe you put on a pair while you're walking in an unfamiliar city, and the glasses start to display information on the inside of those lenses about the area around you. Maybe they provide you directions so you can get to a specific destination. With augmented reality, the whole idea is that a computer system isn't replacing your real-world experience, but instead it's enhancing or augmenting your experience in the real world. Between true VR and AR is a whole band of mixed reality technologies. Some AR headsets allow wearers to have experiences in which the display they use inserts visual elements into their physical space. So you could wear a mixed reality headset, look at the room around you, and watch as a video game character like, I don't know, like Mario or Master Chief or Crash Bandicoot just walks right into the room. A tabletop might become a virtual battleground for little toy armies. A wall could become a window into a fantasy realm. The possibilities are limited only by computer processors, the software, and the imagination of developers. VR and AR share a lot of history and a lot of tech. Engineers have repurposed technology intended for one and used it for the other. And I think it's safe to say that most, but not all, VR implementations have a head-mounted display that can track where someone is looking and then adjust the point of view in the virtual environment accordingly. So that way, if you turn your head left, your virtual point of view also turns left. And that's incredibly important if you want an immersive experience. Just imagine how disorienting it would be if you put on a headset and you're looking at a video game world and you turn your head to look up at the sky, but your view looks down at your feet. That would really throw you off. Likewise, not all AR implementations have a head-mounted display, but many do. These displays have to do something a little different from VR. They have to present a view of the real world. Now, they either do that through a transparent view screen or through a video screen that's got a video feed of the real world. So, in other words, that screen has to be paired with a camera that's feeding a live image to the screen. To do that, the tech has to be able to analyze 
what someone is looking at in order to overlay relevant information, right? It doesn't do you any good if you just get random information. I mean, if you were to wear an AR headset and you're walking through Paris, but then the headset starts giving you directions as if you were on a walk in Moscow, that would be less than useless. So the tech needs sophisticated code to interpret information that could include things like image recognition, compass directions, GPS coordinates, your orientation, and more. All of that is super complicated, and it goes a bit beyond our story. But it's a good thing to remember that to pull off either convincing VR or a really useful AR experience, you need a lot of sophisticated code, and typically you need a fairly powerful computer system running in the background, whether it's on board in some sort of device you're wearing or tethered to a smartphone or tethered to a PC. VR and AR are not interchangeable, but they are close cousins. Augmented reality is probably the more productive member of the family. Many, but not all, of virtual reality's applications relate to entertainment in some way. And many, but not all, of augmented reality's applications relate to productivity. Okay, that's a good overview of two of the big subcategories of mixed reality, though I should point out there are many other aspects of mixed reality that I've not covered, but that could be its own episode. Now let's move on to Magic Leap. The company's founder is Ronnie Abovitz. Abovitz was born in Ohio. His family moved to Florida when he was a kid, and he went to the University of Miami, where he ultimately earned a master's degree in biomedical engineering. So I think it's safe to say he is pretty darn sharp. He earned his master's in 1996, and the following year he would co-found his first company, ZCAT. That's a Z hyphen K-A-T. ZCAT was a medical technology company. The focus of the company was to develop technologies to assist in minimally invasive surgical procedures, which have numerous benefits, including a reduced risk of infection and faster recovery times. The company developed robotic tools that surgeons could control to make precise, delicate incisions. The control systems could translate surgeon commands into steady and small motions with a robotic arm, removing jitter and other muscular movements that would make these kind of procedures difficult or impossible with that level of precision. In 2004, the company chose to spin off its robotics division into a new entity called Mako Surgical Corporation. And the logo for Mako was super cool too, reminiscent of a shark's fin. Mako's a type of shark. And as a side note, the Magic Leap logo is reminiscent of a leaping whale. So there's a very marine theme going with Abovitz's work. So Abovitz served not just as a co-founder of Mako, but the chief technology officer and chief visionary officer for the company. Like ZCAT, Mako would develop technologies to help surgeons, as well as implants for stuff like knee replacement surgery. The Mako systems gave surgeons the information they needed to make real-time decisions during a surgical procedure, including feedback systems to alert surgeons when they were getting close to the border of a predefined safety zone for a particular procedure. It's all super cool stuff that helps minimize any impact to quality of life during the recovery period. Sometime around 2010 or 2011, Abovitz began to think about another project. The surgical assistance technologies relied partly on augmented reality tech. Digital information would augment the surgeon's operating room. 
But Abovitz saw possible applications for this kind of technology that extended not just into the medical field, but beyond. He called the project Magic Leap, and he would create a corporation under that name in 2011. But as for the details of what Magic Leap was all about, that remained a mystery. Things didn't exactly coalesce the following year, when Abovitz put together a presentation for the 2012 TEDx event in Saratoga, Florida. The presentation is on YouTube, and it's really more performance art than anything else. It actually reminds me a lot of the interactive art experiences from Meow Wolf, a collection of artists out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And... Perhaps by no coincidence, Meow Wolf is listed as a potential artistic partner with Magic Leap. By the way, if you're interested in art, performance, tech, and absurdism, I highly recommend you check out Meow Wolf. Their work ranges from whimsical to unsettling. Anyway, I don't think I could describe the TEDx presentation from 2012 effectively. It's just kind of weird. If you want to check it out, it is on YouTube, and it's called The Synthesis of Imagination. And I'll just say this, there is no hint at all what the heck Magic Leap is about in that video. Now, that was sort of okay at that point. The company name wasn't widely known, and you would be forgiven if you were walking away thinking Magic Leap was some sort of art collective that was particularly obsessed with fudge. Seriously, you need to watch the TEDx talk from 2012 to understand that reference. The team began working on a longer-term goal of creating a mixed reality system capable of generating really compelling, impressive digital overlays on top of our real world. Not even just on top of, incorporated into our real world. In 2014, more people would begin to take notice of Magic Leap as it held a round of investment funding and brought in $50 million in the first quarter of the year. But Magic Leap had yet to get truly widespread fame at that point. That did begin to change once people heard who some of these investors were. One of them was Richard Taylor, the Oscar-winning special effects guru who worked on movies like Lord of the Rings and Peter Jackson's King Kong. Other prominent figures in fields like video games and tech companies also were among the number of investors. And in October 2014, Magic Leap received $542 million from numerous investors, including Google. It also didn't hurt that Abovitz had recently seen his company Mako get acquired for a significant sum of money, more than a billion dollars. So things were going pretty fast and furious at this point. Now, clearly, something special had to be happening, right? But what was it? As we'll see, the mystery would be part of the selling point and the problem for Magic Leap. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Abovitz and crew made a choice to be secretive and mysterious with the goal of the company, which did drum up a lot of speculation and buzz about Magic Leap, but that can be a double-edged sword. Because while people were starting to talk about this enigmatic company, it also meant that they were left to fill in the gaps of their knowledge by themselves. And here's a little secret for all of you out there. 
the odds are that whatever thing you're really working on is unlikely to match up to unfettered imagination. And this is why horror movies that leave stuff up to the imagination of the audience can have a much longer lasting effect than a movie that just shows you everything. The same is true for technology. If you don't lay out your vision, people will kind of do that for you. And if that vision doesn't line up with reality, you're setting yourself up for failure as, you know, you're bound to disappoint people in the end. But maybe I'm jumping ahead too much here. The company did give a few members of the media some early glimpses into technology it was working on. One of those journalists was a New York Times reporter named John Markoff. Magic Leap demonstrated some early technology to Markoff, not a production model, just something that was sort of in the R&D department. This implementation wasn't a wearable headset. Markoff described it as looking like, quote, something from an optometrist's office, end quote. And it was projecting what is called a digital light field into his eyes. So what the heck does that mean? And why is it necessary at all? Well, Markov goes into the fact that one of the challenges with both VR and AR has to do with depth and the way we perceive depth. So let's say you're looking down the street and you're watching a someone. Uh, let's say it's Josh Clark of Stuff You Should Know. Someone, this Josh Clark, he's skipping merrily down the street towards you. And actually, yeah, that's, that's actually how he walks. And no, I don't know why he does that. Anyway, you would see Josh Clark is starting off pretty far away from you. You'd focus on him in the distance, but then he's gradually getting closer and closer, skipping, perhaps somewhat menacingly toward you. He would appear to get larger because he's getting closer until at some point he would block out your vision due to the fact that he is also, and he does not mention this very much, he's also a giant. Okay, but let's say you're sitting with a VR headset on instead. And this is simulating you looking down the street. Now you see a virtual representation of Josh Clark skipping toward you. But you're not actually looking at someone who is really far away, right? The virtual Josh Clark is an image on a screen, and that screen is just an inch or two away from your eyes. Josh isn't actually getting closer to you. Instead, the image is getting bigger to simulate that sensation. You're getting visual cues that he's getting closer, but the entire time you're focusing on something that's actually right in front of you, that screen. Now, it's hard to create a real sense of depth on a screen. You can create visual cues to simulate depth, mimicking what we perceive in the real world, but then we have a situation in which our eyes are trying to focus on something that, in our brains, appears to be very far away from us, but in fact it's on a screen that's right in front of us. This can create fatigue and discomfort for the viewer, and it's called Vergence Accommodation Conflict. And if we move this over to augmented reality, we can really see a disconnect. The physical world around us has actual depth. If we want a compelling AR experience that is more than just projecting text in front of our eyes, we need a system that can also incorporate depth in our virtual images so that they fit into the real world around us. Otherwise, we'll be trying to focus on stuff that's on a screen, even if it's a transparent one, that's right in front of us, while also trying to focus beyond in the real space around us. Enter the light field. Now, way back in the day, I talked about light field technology with the Lytro camera. 
This digital camera could do something super cool. You could take a digital photo with it, and then, after the fact, you could change the focus of that image. Now, to understand why that's cool, let's think about standard photography. A camera, whether film or digital, has a lens, typically. There are cameras that don't have lenses, but let's just talk about the lensed ones. The purpose of the lens is to direct light. It bends the light toward a photoreactive element, either photoreactive film or a digital sensor. The physical curvature of the lens will determine how much it will bend that light. By moving the lens closer to or further from that photoreactive element, you can direct light from different distances toward that element. You will get a different point of focus, a different focal point. So you might have one setting that you can capture so that you get a clear image of a very distant object, and then you would have a totally different setting if you wanted to get a clear photo of something that was much closer to you. Or you might even swap out lenses if you had to get a wider angle, or if you wanted to really zoom into something that was really further away. But the Lytro camera and other light field cameras are different. They capture a light field, which describes all the rays of light moving in all directions within a given area, the frame of view of the camera. And it includes not just the direction of the light, but the intensity of each ray of light. The special images these cameras produce, which require a special app to manipulate afterward, represent all the different rays of light within a shot. And so you can change the focus of that image. You can choose which rays of light you want to really focus on. So if you've got one object that's close to you and another that's in the background, you can actually switch focus from background to foreground over and over again, just choosing whichever one you want to look at at a given time. But how the heck does this technology actually work? It's one thing to say that the camera captures the light field of a scene and another to actually make something that can do that. So your typical light field camera has all the elements of a normal camera, that is, it has a lens to direct incoming light, there's an aperture or a hole that the light must pass through in order to hit a sensor for recording the image. But the Lytro also has what's called a micro lens array, which sits between the main lens and the sensor. Now, as that name suggests, a micro lens array is a collection of very small lenses that can capture light coming from different distances from the camera's sensor. If you think of a, a camera as having detachable lenses where you can put a different lens on in order to get a different focal point, just imagine a whole sheet of tiny little lenses that all can do that, and each lens has a slightly different curve to it, so it can focus at a slightly different distance. You've got an entire array of these tiny lenses, and they're all directing light toward particular pixels on the digital camera's sensor. Each micro lens is doing the same thing and for its own focal point, that is. That means you can have different micro lenses dedicated to those specific focal points, all capturing all the information to that sensor. Using the special app and photo file type, you can then select which batch of information you want to look at. And in this case, the batches of information relate to different focal points. So you can say, I wanna look at all the light that was at this object, and it brings that object into focus. Then you click on a different object and you say, now I want to look at that one. And it brings all that light into focus instead. It's just switching lenses virtually in a way. 
There are companies working on technologies that will allow for light field displays without a micro lens array, but that topic is pretty darn complicated, even more so than just the standard light field cameras. So I'm going to save that for another time. Now, the Magic Leap concept that Markov got to see also had light field technology, but in this case, it was a light field display. And the goal was to project an image onto the retina of the user's eye rather than to create a special type of digital photo. Ideally, the goal would be to create three-dimensional virtual objects using depth cues and meshing those virtual objects with the real environment so that to your eye, it would be no different than if the virtual object really were there in the same space as you. So if you had a floating castle as your virtual object, to your eye, it should look like the floating castle really is floating there. Not only would the virtual object seem to belong to the physical space it appeared to occupy, you could view that virtual stuff from different angles. So your floating castle, you could walk around it and you, let's say it's floating at say chest level. You could walk around, see it from every single angle. It would be sitting there in the air as if it were actually there. You could squat down and look under it. You could get on your tiptoes and look at the turrets and the parapets and everything from the top. It would appear to actually have a physical presence. Now, Markov only got a first glimpse at this technology, and to be fair, the New York Times piece was really more about the general potential of AR and VR and light field technologies. But that piece did have a little nugget from Abovitz who said, quote, Our real market is people doing everyday things. Rather than pulling your mobile phone in and out of your pocket, we want to create an all-day flow. Whether you're going to the doctor or a meeting or hanging out, you will all of a sudden be amplified by the collective knowledge that is on the web. End quote. Now, I think the phrase that will end up being something we'll have to look back on is our real market is people doing everyday things. We've got to keep that in mind when we get to stuff like how much the actual product costs. Now the world got a little more insight into what Magic Leap wanted to do. They wanted to create an AR technology that could enhance our day-to-day -day activities in various ways. But while there were some tantalizing details fed to the general public, a lot of Magic Leap's actual work was still an enigma. In 2015, Magic Leap began releasing demo videos of what its technology would be able to do. These videos stated that the footage that was shot was through the Magic Leap technology with no special effects or compositing used after the fact. The demos were definitely compelling. My favorite one showed a miniature virtual representation of the solar system seemingly hanging in the air over a desk. And right next to the solar system was a woman at work on a computer. The details of the model were incredible. They included a little rotating earth and they were all had incredibly vibrant colors. It was amazing. The sun, the planets, the moons all looked solid as they moved in their pathways. Really breathtaking stuff. And those videos are still up on YouTube if you want to check them out. The company filed for a patent on its technology, which included a mention of a, quote, photonic light field chip, end quote, presumably the technology that could create the projection of virtual objects to then be beamed right into a person's eyeballs. The patent also called for, quote, an inertial measurement unit, end quote, or IMU. This would later be revealed to be a device that would hold the processor, uh, the storage, and the battery for the Magic Leap system. It would be something that you would have to 
you know, wear on a belt, you know, clip it to a pocket, something like that. And offloading the tech onto a tethered wearable pack meant that the engineers didn't have to figure out how to cram all those components into the form factor of the headset itself, which would help keep the glasses more lightweight and less bulky. Also, it would help deal with heating issues. I mean, this thing was going to require a lot of processing and processors can run a little warm and you don't want to have a super hot processor right next to, say, your temple. Now, the mysterious nature of Magic Leap didn't hurt when it came to investments. Heck, maybe maybe it actually helped a lot. Investors, convinced that this could be the next big thing, poured cash into Magic Leap. In early 2016, the company had already raised nearly $1.4 billion in investments. Abovitz had a great reputation. His work in medical robotics had been a proven success. And while there had been other attempts at creating augmented reality or mixed reality headsets, no one had really nailed it yet. Magic Leap claimed that the company was working on a totally new approach to generating augmented reality experiences, which meant that maybe it was sidestepping some of the limitations that had held back other implementations. So instead of saying, oh, well, we, we're going to get to market after Microsoft and the HoloLens, they could say, we're doing a totally different approach to augmented reality that is unlike what they are doing. Slowly, the potential for Magic Leap appeared to be forming in the minds of the public. And this could be way more advanced than a system that would let you play games. You could use it to replace stuff like televisions or computer displays. You could create virtual screens in your environment. The device would remember where you put stuff. So if you designated a segment of your wall as a giant television, that's where it would appear whenever you wore the Magic Leap. You could still look around and the screen would appear to be anchored in that physical space, as if you had actually hung a TV there. So with this device, you could have multiple computer screens open all at the same time and none of them would take up any actual physical space. Now when we come back, we'll talk about the launch of the real Magic Leap 1 headset, the tech that makes it work, and what has happened to the company since that product launch. But first let's take another quick break. Magic Leap got its start in 2011. It would not have a product to launch for nearly a full decade. Before that, the company did offer up a limited developer edition of the technology called the Magic Leap One Creators Edition, starting in August 2018. It would cost $2,295, a princely sum indeed. A journal called The Information would later allege that Magic Leap was only able to sell 6,000 of the Creator Edition model upon the first six months of its release. And it also said that Magic Leap's goal was to sell 100,000 units. So the goal was 100,000, reality was 6,000. So as you can imagine, that represents a pretty severe shortfall. And between the launch of the Creator Edition in 2018 and the actual Magic Leap 1 headset in December 2019, the company would see cutbacks, it would have a travel freeze so that it wasn't going to pay for corporate travel, there were layoffs, there were a lot of departures beyond the layoffs. The shine on the company was starting to dull a bit. And it had been a long time since those early demo videos, and the market response to the Creator Edition was underwhelming to say the least. No doubt some of the investors were starting to get a bit antsy. After all, 
More than $2 billion had already gone into the company since it got started. Now, it was in December 2019 that Magic Leap introduced the Magic Leap 1 system. The company had only held a few demonstrations, mostly to select members of the press, not a whole lot of public demos of this technology, and the demo and concept videos had impressed a lot of people a few years before. Uh, one famous concept video showed a school gym filled with students that were sitting on the bleachers. They were looking into an otherwise empty gym, and suddenly a whale appears to breach from the gym floor, leaping high into the air, and the kids all gasp. But was that the sort of experience people could actually come to expect with the Magic Leap 1? Well, maybe... But first, you would have to meet that sales price, which was the same as the Creator Edition, a hefty $2,295. That's still the price for the spatial computer as of this recording. And that includes the headset, which is officially known as Lightware, and the IMU, now known as the Light Pack, and that houses the processors and battery for the Magic Leap. It's connected to the Magic Leap headset with a wire. And it also includes a wireless controller that you can hold in one hand, similar to the Wii Nunchuck in a way. The processor in the Magic Leap 1 is an NVIDIA Parker SOC. SOC stands for System on a Chip. It has six processor cores. There's also an NVIDIA Pascal graphics processing unit, or GPU, and it has 8 gigabytes of RAM. Uh, it also has a 128 gigabyte hard drive, although only 95 gigabytes of actual storage space is available on it. The battery in the light pack is said to hold enough juice for three hours of use, or you can actually plug into an a wall. You have a little AC adapter that you can plug into a wall for sustained use. Though obviously if you do that, you're tethered to a power outlet. One thing Magic Leap does differently from other devices is that the processing can all take place on the system itself. Unlike, for example, Google Glass, which you would have to pair with a smartphone. So Google Glass is more of a smartphone peripheral whereas Magic Leap 1 is a computer system all by itself. The light pack can connect via USB or Wi-Fi to a computer, and you can use that to download or launch apps. According to Omar Khan, the product officer for Magic Leap, the Magic Leap 1 device had some minor updates compared to the original Creator Edition, but at least on casual glance, the two seem pretty close to identical. The headset, which looks kind of like goggles, has speakers built into them, and that can create immersive directional sound. So if you wore the Magic Leap and you were playing a game, you would be able to hear virtual things moving around your real environment. You might be able to hear something sneaking up on you. You'd turn around, you'd actually see it there. That's pretty darn cool. It also has a couple of infrared emitters and sensors built into the front of the headset, and these are used to create a digital map of your physical environment. See, to make a virtual character appear as if it is actually in a physical space, first the Magic Leap 1 has to know what your physical space is like. So those emitters send out pulses of infrared light, and those pulses reflect off the various surfaces in your space, and then they come back and get picked up by the infrared sensors on the front of the Magic Leap 1. It's a little bit like echolocation, and it gives the Magic Leap 1 processor the data it needs to understand depth in your environment. 
Measuring the time it takes the infrared to go out and come back tells the magic leap if a table is closer to you than a chair, for example. And so when the leap starts to project a virtual image into your view, it can incorporate the physical environment more convincingly. The controller has a magnetic controller tracking device in it. The controller has an emitter, the headset has a receiver, and the controller allows for all sorts of interactions within a virtual environment, from playing a game to performing simple controls with a virtual video screen. The Magic Leap 1 also can track hand movements, so you can do gesture-based controls as well, so it all really depends on the application and what you want to do. The real star of the show would be the light field projectors. Six small lenses lit from the side, angle light to hit your eyes. And it's really no different than you looking at something without glasses on at all, right? Light from the environment you are in hits your eyes, and then your brain susses out what you're looking at. With the Magic Leap 1, the light isn't coming just from the environment. It's also coming from the device. But if it's done well, your brain doesn't necessarily register the difference. And so to you, it appears as though these virtual elements are really in your physical space. The headset does restrict your field of view, however. The visual field refers to the area of space a person can see at any given moment. We measure it by degrees from the center. So this includes the area you focus on as well as your peripheral vision. So a typical visual field has a full range of 155 degrees across horizontally and 135 degrees up and down or vertically. The Magic Leap 1, in contrast, has a horizontal field of view of 40 degrees and a vertical field of view of 30 degrees. So clearly, it's much more restricted than the typical 155 by 135. A lot of that unrestricted view is peripheral, so it's stuff you're not necessarily really focusing on, but you still can see it. So wearing a Magic Leap 1 means that you see less of your surroundings. However, you could argue it also helps direct your focus toward the virtual elements, so perhaps it's also boosting the effect of having those virtual elements in your environment. Now, I've not tried these on myself, so I can't speak as to what it's like to actually wear them. That being said, the reports I've read make it sound pretty darn amazing. But at that price, the Magic Leap was not really in the ballpark for a consumer device. Most folks don't dish out $2,000 for a fully-fledged PC. I mean, the gamers do, but most of us don't. So Magic Leap was gearing their marketing efforts afterward toward enterprises, much as Microsoft had with the HoloLens device, another augmented reality headset. They did this pretty late in the game, though, so this is another point of criticism people have levied at Magic Leap, because so much of their marketing early on appeared to be directed toward the average person. I mean, this was supposed to help us in our day-to-day -day activities, right? But now it was becoming clear that just the cost of producing this thing meant there was no way to make it affordable for a consumer market. You were going to have to market it towards the enterprise. But that was a disconnect between the earlier messaging from Magic Leap. And that report I mentioned from the information was pretty brutal. It painted a picture of a company that had failed to meet both external and internal expectations. Worse, the piece suggested that a second generation of the technology, a Magic Leap 2, perhaps one at a lower price point, was at least two years further down the road. And then 2020 happened. And it's still happening.
it's happened like crazy to me, and I'm one of the ones who's lucky that it only really happened a little bit. I hope that 2020 happening to you has been as smooth as possible, but man, we're all going to need a do-over, I think. Anyway, Magic Leap was already on shaky ground. The lackluster response to the Creator Edition was a bad blow. The information's report on the company wasn't much better, so Magic Leap collected a veritable who's who in speculative fiction, special effects, computing, and more, all of them becoming part of the corporate officers or board of directors, really elevating the perception of Magic Leap. But that collection of luminaries began to dwindle. Some were leaving on their own accord, some left after offices shut down, and fewer and fewer of those big names were still with the company. One person who stepped down was Abovitz himself, who relinquished his position as head of the company in March 2020. That was around the same time that the company announced the 1,000 employee layoffs. Abovitz remains connected to the board of directors, however. So what exactly happened? Well, I think, in a way, we saw a repeat of the boom and bust of virtual reality back in the 1990s. There was a hype train that inflated interest. Uh, I don't know what the corporate culture of Magic Leap is like. I don't know if a company indulged in extravagance the way a lot of startups have in the past. I haven't seen reports of lavish parties or ridiculous expenses. But just developing that technology and getting it into a form factor that's small enough to fit into goggles and a puck-sized clip-on device, just that is an enormous challenge. Developing the tech had to be expensive, and getting the involvement of various big thinkers like Neil Stevenson, Snow Crash himself, that had to cost a pretty penny as well. And then you've got a lot of money going out and not a lot coming in. You can see that things can't go like that forever. Now, according to The Verge, Magic Leap is dealing with some pretty tricky issues. Enterprises aren't exactly champing at the bit to invest in expensive experimental hardware, particularly hardware that is designed to run apps that can only come from a single unproven source. You know, just as Apple controls what apps you can run on an iPhone by vetting them before they can go into the App Store, Magic Leap was making itself the one source for software to run on the hardware. Developers would have to submit uh, software to Magic Leap for it to become available to run on Magic Leap headsets. But if companies aren't confident that Magic Leap is going to stick around, it makes no sense to sink thousands of dollars in hardware that isn't able to run other types of applications. Really, what this does is drive home how hard it is to do augmented reality well, or mixed reality if you prefer. Most companies have to make compromises. You can reduce the cost of hardware by offloading work onto a different device like a smartphone or a computer, but if you're using a phone, then you're gonna have limits to what you can accomplish just based on that phone's processor and connection speed. If you're using a computer, you have to figure out how are you transmitting data between the computer and your device. It might limit the uses for your tech because you may not be able to move that far away from the home base computer. Magic Leap was trying to create a device that wouldn't depend on any other gadget, avoiding that kind of compromise. But that also meant the cost for the device was going to be much higher to cover the cost of all those components. On top of that, the company was really trying to make most of those components itself rather than rely on existing third-party hardware. That would just add to the cost because you have to develop all those pieces. 
In fact, it's quite possible that originally they were looking to develop their own processors before they moved to the NVIDIA ones. In short, there were a lot of very lofty expectations for the technology. And even if the technology delivers upon the experience, the expense means that most of us don't get an opportunity to try it out. And that's unfortunate. There are a lot of questions out there over whether or not Magic Leap will be able to recover from this. The 2020 pandemic is an added twist to an already difficult path. I think if Magic Leap does survive, it's going to be a very different entity than the mysterious one we have seen, you know, talked about since 2012 or so. I hope it sticks around. I want to see mixed reality become a more universal technology, but it's going to take a lot of time and development and that cost has to come down. And that's going to, that's a, that's a, that's a big challenge. I just don't know how you manage to do it in the short term. It may be years before we see anything that is truly compelling and practical and affordable. I hope we see it. We'll have to wait. All right, guys, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff. If you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.